Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 51st episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me JAG. I am the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand, including the idea of objectivity. Uh, and that is a, a good context for, for our guest today. Um, also, I wanted to mention in a previous incarnation, I, uh, I ran the Dole Nutrition Institute. So this is kind of fun for me. I feel like I'm going back to, uh, to a previous incarnation. I'm going to get to introducing our, our special guest, Nina Teichels. Uh, before I do that, I want to remind all of you that are joining us on Zoom, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, um, Instagram, Twitter, uh, start asking your questions now, tee them up, uh, just type them into the chat or into the Q&A. We're going to get to as many of them as possible. Please keep them short. Uh, so Nina Teichels is a New York Times best-selling author and investigative science journalist. She is the author of the best-selling book, the Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet, um, which I highly recommend. And it's got a wonderful narrator also on Audible. Uh, the book challenges conventional thinking regarding dietary fat and government dietary policy. Uh, Nina is also executive director of the Nutrition Coalition, a nonprofit, nonpartisan educational organization with the primary goal of ensuring that U.S. nutrition policy is based on rigorous scientific evidence. Nina, welcome again. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So from your book, uh, The Big Fat Surprise, you wrote all our dietary recommendations about fat, the ingredients about which our health authorities have obsessed most during the past 60 years, appeared not just uh, slightly off track, but completely wrong. Almost nothing that we commonly believe today about fats generally and saturated fat in particular appears uh, clo on close examination to be accurate. How, in your, your book tells the story, um, how did we get so off track? Well, it's a big question. You know, it when I started this whole journey, uh, I it was in the early two thousands, and um, you know, I was a vegetarian. <laughs> like the last thing that I ever thought is that I would end up with a book with a piece of meat on the cover, or that I would even write such a book. Uh, I just became interested in this topic because I had been assigned to write a story on trans fats and. That took me deep into this whole world of dietary fat, you know, good fat, bad fat, low fat, how much fat do we eat? It was just what we've been told to obsess about most in the diet. And I certainly obsessed about it growing up. And, you know, I went and I interviewed hundreds and hundreds of scientists, uh, top all top nutrition scientists in the US. I read maybe 10,000 scientific papers and really followed the paper trail back to even really the late, uh, uh, 19th century to figure out where these ideas had come from. Um, you know, we didn't always used to be a nation where you know, we're currently, we have almost 43% of adults have obesity and over half of the population now has prediabetes or diabetes. That was just not the case not so long ago. 
Um, but it seems like a, you know, it seems almost impossible that that could be true. Um, so it, you know, turned out to just be this incredible story where this, um, in the 1950s, when uh, President Eisenhower had his heart attack in 1955 and, and was out of the Oval Office for 10 days, and there was this panic, much like we have a panic today over COVID, like what causes heart disease? People really didn't know, and we still don't truly know today. But at the time, there were a number of ideas about the cause of heart disease. People thought it was malnutrition, not getting enough vitamins and minerals. Other people thought it had to do with too much auto exhaust, more cars in the road. Other people thought it was the type A personality. You run around screaming at everybody, all that stress, and then eh, you have a heart attack and die. But the winning idea was proposed by a pathologist of the by the name of Ansel Keys, a professor at the University of Minnesota. His idea was that it was saturated fat and dietary cholesterol, so meat, cheese, egg, eggs, shellfish, that would raise the cholesterol in your blood and clog your arteries like hot oil down a cold stovepipe and just clog your arteries and give you a heart attack. And he, uh, you know, the interesting thing was to profile him because he's this incredibly charismatic and compelling man who had absolutely unshakable faith in his own beliefs, which maybe was something we'll talk about, you know, what is required in science is to consist constantly doubt yourself and, and not to fall in love with your own ideas. But Ansel Keys truly fell in love with his own ideas. He was able to um, be an advocate for them. And he was able to get his idea into the American Heart Association, which was really the premier group looking at heart disease, such that in 1961, the American Heart Association based on almost zero, certainly no clinical trial evidence, which is the rigorous kind of science, but just very little um, data of any kind, they recommended to the all men, because heart disease was mainly a disease for man at the time, all men should avoid saturated fat and switch to polyunsaturated vegetable oils as the first measure of protection against heart disease. So that was the first recommendation anywhere in the world to tell people, stop eating these foods to avoid heart disease. And that just, that little acorn just blossomed, not to say blossomed, but it exploded into this giant oak tree of advice that we now have all over the world. Authorities saying, well, authorities no longer talk about capping cholesterol, which was something we should talk about, but you know, everybody still believes that saturated fat causes heart disease and that we should avoid these foods as a, the best measure of protection against heart disease. But it really hasn't been that long that we have had this idea. So that was the origin story of this idea. Um, and it's had a long history since then. We can talk about, about that if you like. But, you know, it basically it was tested in multiple clinical trials all around the world by different governments on more than 65,000 people, huge clinical trials, the gold standard of science, and it could never show, be shown to be true. People who took saturated fats out of their diet, ate less meat, ate less cheese, replaced them with what we would now do as impossible burgers, but whatever the version of it was back then in the 60s and 70s, ate soy-filled, drank soy-filled milk. Those people who took all those measures did not spare themselves heart disease or or you know, they did not um, live longer. They, they had the same rates of mortality, the same rates of cardiovascular disease, same rates of everything. Um, and in fact, in quite a few of the experiments, the people who lowered their cholesterol 
uh, actually died um, earlier. They had higher rates of cardi what's called cardiovascular mortality is death from heart disease. So what we have is just this runaway hypothesis that um, that you know filled a void at a time when we needed explanations, but just turned out not to be true. But we are still living with it today. So just to take a, a step back and, and uh, return to kind of the, the basics, other than um, eating a low fat diet is going to reduce cholesterol and reducing cholesterol is going to reduce uh, heart disease. Um, what are some of, what are the, the promised benefits uh, over the years of a low fat diet? What have been the effects, the, the counterintuitive or, or uh, unexpected effects and maybe conversely, uh, what specifically have, have been maintained as the dangers of meat consumption and what are, what are more of the surprising benefits? I mean, for example, one of the ones that I, I took away from, from your book was uh, that HDL cholesterol was, was higher in, in those who consume meat. We tend to think of HDL as associated with you know, maybe a couple of glasses of red wine or with exercise, but it seemed that there was actually a, a correlation, if not a causation, with, uh, with eating meat. Right. Well, let's start with that and then we'll work backwards towards low-fat diet. So it turns out that um, not only meat, but any food with sat that contains saturated fat, so that includes uh, dairy, uh, that dairy is actually the high, the food with the highest concentration of saturated fatty acids. I should just pause and open parentheses and tell you that all foods contain a mixture of different kinds of fatty acids. So if you say there's like saturated fat in cheese, it's not all saturated fats. There's some unsaturated fats like olive oil or vegetable oil. So all foods contain a mixture, but in different proportions. So dairy has the highest proportion of saturated fats, coconut oil way up there, like 98% saturated fats. Meat um, is maybe, it depends on the cut of meat and how you trim it, but let's say a porterhouse steak is about two thirds saturated fatty acids. And it turns out that saturated fats are the only food known to raise your good cholesterol. That's your HDL, which um, Jag was talking about, if I may call you Jag. Yes, <laughs> we're already friends. I feel like we know each other already. Um, I grew up with a, as a daughter of a cardiologist, so this is keenly interesting to me. Yeah, so you actually have like probably grew up with these these terms around the house. I mean, the terms, the diets, the, now the changing diet, so. Yeah. Well, so HDL is known as your good cholesterol, and um, and if you go to the doctor and your HDL is low, they your doctor will say, well, here's how you raise it. You can drink more red wine, you can exercise some, but that really just will raise it a little, and otherwise, we don't know. We don't have a drug for it. So, but the, the, really, the fastest way to raise your HDL. Um, is to eat saturated fats. So eat more meat, eat more cheese. Um, those foods will raise your HDL. And if we might just go a little bit further along the, uh, the cardiology conversation, of the, th of the things that, that a doctor regularly measures to evaluate your risk for heart disease, um, your HDL, the ratio of your HDL cholesterol to triglycerides, um, triglycerides are actually fatty acids circulating in the blood. That is, that ratio is the most predictive of your risk of heart disease, of the things that are regularly measured. You can do more exotic things like measure, get a CAC score or something. 
But, um, and, you know, HDL, the way to raise that is to eat more sat foods with saturated fat in them. I'm not saying eat a stick of butter, but eat, eat the foods, you know, that contain all the nutrients and the protein as well. And, um, and the way to lower your triglycerides in order to improve that ratio is to reduce your grains and sugars. Uh, basically, that triglycerides are driven almost entirely uh, by your carbohydrate consumption. So, um, you know, to just so that's the cardiovascular benefit of meat. Um, and in all of the reviews, you know, people hear so it's very hard to talk about red meat because there's just a massive amount of information out there and for all kinds of different uh, reasons that really have nothing to do with health. There are animal rights activists, um, many of them sort of looking like doctors, but are actually animal rights activists who don't want you eating meat for animal rights reasons. There are um, there is now all the, the the climate change, the environmental activists who don't want you eating meat um, because of the planet, uh, and so there's just a massive amount of information about red meat that is not based in in science but other agendas. But uh, there was a series of reviews of the totality of the evidence on red meat that were done in the Annals of Internal Medicine in fall, that came out in the fall of 2019, the most rigorous reviews ever undertaken on the subject of red meat. And I can put them in the show notes, but um, they all concluded looking at outcomes that included heart disease, cancer, outcomes related to diabetes. And, and they looked at, and looking at all the data, they said, all we have is very low quality data very low certainty, very small, small um, results. Um, in other words, there was just tiny, just a tiny bit of an impact of red meat and the, and the quality of the evidence was really low. And so the conclusion was that we, there's really, we cannot, the, the authors themselves concluded, we cannot tell you anything about red meat. You should eat the red amount of red meat that you want to eat because eating meat is also a question of culture and preferences and tastes. And um, they, they just said there's not enough evidence to say anything to the contrary. Well, the you know, an another um, one of the things that talking about what we've seen over the course of our lifetime, uh, you, you mentioned you started out as a vegetarian. I have also been a vegetarian at one point. You probably remember Moosewood cookbook. You know, there was yeah. a time when being, you know, a vegetarian meant eggs and, and milk and, you know, creamy soups and things like that. Um, it's almost impossible to find a, a vegetarian of that ilk today. It's now all about uh, veganism and uh, veganism has increased dramatically um, with an astounding as many as 6% of, of U.S. consumers identifying as uh, vegans. Um, what can you tell us about this, this trend? How much of it has been motivated by uh, health? How much maybe by, by other, um, other concerns, like you said, an animal welfare? Uh, but I know your, your sphere is, is nutrition and health. Um, what can you tell us about the relative health merits of, of veganism? Uh, and what can you tell us about the health of the, of the debate? The, the science yeah. and the public's so, understanding of the facts. Well, I just published earlier this week, and or maybe it was last week, an hour-long talk on 
the politics of red meat, because I think that what we're seeing now is not an honest scientific debate about meat and climate change and health. What we're seeing is driven by uh, ideological interests and, and probably mostly uh, multinational corporate interests. And there are multiple levels of different interests coming together that I can we'll just mention a few of them. And then maybe, I mean, really, I spent an hour talking about this, but there's the animal rights activists who are who are very, very well funded and resourced. And um, there's a group called the Physician PCRM Physician Center for Responsible Medicine. And they are basically animal rights activists who pretend they're some of them are medical doctors, but many of them aren't. And they are very aggressive in their tactics. There is um, so and, and they work, you know, they, they're doing things like um, Freedom of Information Act requests to ruin people's careers and lawsuits, and um, and then there's uh, there's just huge um, multinational corporations, both the food industry and the pharmaceutical industry. So they're interested in uh, the food industry is interested in removing meat from your dinner plate and replacing it, say, with pasta. I mean, there is such a thing as big carb as as a sort of a, a large force. Um, if you look at the Meatless Mondays movement, which uh, seems to be well-intentioned and maybe well-intentioned, but it's also backed by almost 40 food corporations, all of which benefit when meat is no longer served, something has to replace it. So that's part of the, um, the some of the interest there. There's also the, the fake meat, fake, the sort of the impossible burgers of the world and the Oatly milks and, and they are, I mean, their market valuations are are astronomical. I think that Impossible Burger is valued at eight billion dollars, or maybe that's maybe it's the other one now. But they are they're they're really um, just rocketing in terms of investment, and they're interested, you know, not only in in their market share and in, in making a tremendous amount of money, but then if that's successful as Bill Gates hopes it will be, then he then it then they own all the patents to our food. So um, they, they, we are eating food that we, we can't produce ourselves. And then there's also bizarrely the Seventh-day Adventist church, which is extremely influential in the space of nutrition. And it is, it is a completely strange story, but they, they're um, really, probably their primary means of evangelism is through uh, healthcare activities, cooking activities, and all, and they're, their strong belief is that uh, is that the vegan diet is the best the vegan diet not just a vegetarian diet is the best one for human health and so they they are um deeply involved in in um evangelistic activities to try to spread this around the world um and they're extremely connected i mean they're the there's scientists at harvard that that work closely with the the scientists from the seventh day adventist church they're they're sort of operating at the highest levels of nutrition science so i mean these are just some of the interests now that have seemed to converge on this effort to promote the the vegan and vegetarian diet i already mentioned the environmental movement um and in terms of the process that has brought this kind of apparent consensus about this apparent consensus that meat is bad for health and meat is bad for the planet, there has been no, it has not been a, a process that's involved any uh, debate or um, 
inclusion of opposing viewpoints or um, conferences where people then talk, talk about say, oh, what about regenerative agriculture, which is a whole way of raising meat that um, that is um, includes cows, but it is is develops carbon sinks and is healthy for the planet or there, there's nobody like me at the table talking about the health benefits of meat. So it's been a very much a one sided process that is um, just to give you a sense of how far along it is, the United Nations is poised to adopt uh, uh, what we would say is a, a quasi vegetarian diet, but it's really um, it's almost a vegan diet. It allows you to have 0.5 ounces of meat a day, which is of all red meats, um, which is like this much. Um, and the United Nations is poised to adopt that as its so-called reference diet for the whole planet. Um, and, and that's just, it's not been a consultative process. It's been driven by Davos and the companies in the World Economic Forum. And, uh, and its partner is, 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 the corporate partner is the Trade Association for the Lab Meat Companies. So it's, um, it really is not a process that has reflects, it's not a scientific process at all. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but um, no, it does. You know, I could go on for quite a long time on that subject. I don't want to, you know, hijack the whole conversation. With no, it. No, um, it, it does take us back, if you will, a little bit. You talked about um, the history and, and about uh, President Eisenhower and how uh, freaked out the nation got um, and, and how that really was a, a turning point in our fascination and interest um, in, into the nutritional um, impacts on heart disease. But before we saw these vast increases in diabetes, in obesity, in um, heart disease, what, what did the early American uh, diet, diet look like? And I, I'm obviously a lot of it was, was driven by relative scarcity at the time, but, but, but what was our, our diet like in, in those earlier years? Well, um, I can tell you um, some just interesting uh, little factoids. I mean, the most famous nutritionist of the 19th century, Albog uh, was his name, and he wrote um, papers for the government about the nutrition of America. And he basically recommended, he said, don't, rec don't eat any vegetables uh, because they have poor nutrition. They don't offer much in the way of, of nutrition that the body can use. They rot easily and they are, um, and they're, they're just not worth, your, worth the time to cultivate. So um, Americans uh, used, and Americans didn't eat fruit at all because it was almost at all because, and in fact, they, they, they found fruit suspicious because it was very hard if you lived in a city, I should say, not in the countryside, but in a city, fruit was, um, it was, it was not local. It was, you could not get it fresh. I mean, in, in most of America, you couldn't get fresh fruits and vegetables except during the, the growing season, the summer months, really you're talking about June to maybe November. And then otherwise you're living on stored fruits and vegetables, stored vegetables really, root vegetables. And, and you're really living on, um, you know, Americans ate lots of meat and, and dairy. They ate much, much more meat. The, the, the slaves, there was, there's a really fascinating book called Putting Meat on the American Table where he goes back and looks at the slave allocations for slaves where the average slave ate more meat a day, had more meat to eat than the average American does today. We just ate much more meat. There's 
travelers to the United States, including um, Charles Dickens and um, Trollope's, uh, I think, believe his wife, uh, who traveled here and wrote about it, said that the typical American breakfast was uh, a T-bone steak um, or salt pork. Salt pork was a staple because um, that kept well and it was just hugely abundant. So we, we had a very different diet. And in the early 1900s, the concerns for nutrition scientists were mainly about getting enough food, right? Getting enough food and getting enough nutrients. And, and so the whole idea of nutrition science, and there was sort of a golden age in the 20s and 30s when they discovered all the essential vitamins and minerals. We're basically like, what do we need to live and reproduce healthfully? So they discovered all the, vit the, all the vitamins and minerals. And, and I mean, famously, like, you know, when they men would go out to sea and they would get scurvy because they didn't have vitamin C and they didn't understand that for a long time. Um, uh, or, you know, if you don't have enough vitamin B, you get beriberi or so all of that was discovered. And the obsession of nutrition experts was making, ensuring that the American public could get all of these nutrients that it needed for healthy life and healthy reproduction. Well, it's astonishing today that we are just today in a situation where we have rampant malnutrition amongst some of America's, uh, you know, among people who are wealthy. We have, there's just an article out in the Wall Street Journal about the, the fact that we there are so many women, especially teenage women and women of reproductive, re reproductive age are deficient in vitamin D, folate, iron, also, they're deficient in B12. That's true. The elderly are deficient in B12. And all of those are um, vitamins that you get. Uh, well, folate and iron and B12 are all almost exclusively in, well, B12 is exclusively in animal foods. You cannot get that from plants. And the kind of iron that you can, that is bioavailable, that is your body can digest it, that, on, that is only in animal foods. Um, the idea that you can get your iron from spinach uh, or even your calcium from spinach is just not true. It's not as bioavailable. You can't absorb that from um, those nutrients from plant foods. So we're in a, situ a bizarre situation today where we're facing malnutrition because just going back to this, I, you know, how, how do we get off on this diet that, that really almost none of it is based on good science? We're being told to eat a diet that is nutritionally insufficient that it does not meet basic nutrient goals and a big part of that is that we're being told not to eat meat um we're being told to stay away from dairy foods but that's where the nutrients are we were told to eat egg white omelets and where's all where all the nutrients in the eggs including a nutrient called choline that is also borderline deficient or or just flat out deficient in america that's in the egg yolks yeah, we did a lot of research actually at the Dole Nutrition Institute on, on choline and, and on vitamin D and trying to also find plant sources for it as well. And it was interesting that the one plant source that we could find had to also be induced was, was mushrooms, uh, which, are, which are plants, but are also fungi so that with exposure to sunlight, they could, uh, they could produce it. But again, as you mentioned, the, the questions of bioavailability, particularly when we do have access to, to sunlight. Uh, I have a question here, and I've got many of my own that I want to still get to, but Mark on YouTube asks, what do you think about synthetically produced meat? 
this is the lab meat or or the um or the like the impossible burger which is made from pea protein and um well let me just address both of them the 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 impossible burger and beyond burger that are made from pea proteins and other kinds of um ingredients i mean they have a very long list of ingredients and you you put it up next to what's in dog food and it looks pretty much the same i mean there's you know there's it's it's we were told not to eat processed foods with high, with a long list of ingredients for a reason. You know, these are not natural ingredients. They, um, many of them are, you know, are imported from China. They don't, we don't know about their production standards over there. I mean, the idea of eating natural foods, eating foods that your grandmother ate, <laughs> eating foods that are, that don't have such a long list of ingredients, that remains true. I mean, it's astonishing to me that we have that somehow due to the incredible marketing muscle of these companies, which have had hundreds of millions of dollars invested in them, that, you know, there are enough people now writing in their favor that we have been convinced that somehow a highly processed fake food could, could even begin to be healthy. I mean, the ingredient list in meat is meat. That's it. There's, there's just nothing else. Even if you go to a McDonald's, if you just get the patty and not all the stuff around it, which is the unhealthy part, it's just meat. There's only one ingredient. So, um, and the lab meat, I mean, the lab meat is, you know, they have to you in order to get for in order for any of these kinds of meats to contain the vitamins and minerals that real meat gives you they have to put all that in as supplements well many people can't absorb the those supplements as well um i could i used to be anemic because i didn't eat meat and i took iron supplements and i my body didn't absorb them and i was still anemic um so they would have to add all those supplements into those foods maybe you'll be able to absorb them maybe not and then i think there's this really a critical issue which I raised earlier, which is they'll own, you know, there's like 17 patents involved in making an impossible burger. Well, I don't, I don't think it's healthy uh, to have uh, a few people and holding um, and controlling the patents to our food supply. That would make me very nervous. We have a question from Aaron Tao, who's been involved with our Atlas Advocates, and he uh, reviewed your book back in 2015 for the Independent Institute. He wants to know if you see parallels um, between the kind of insularity and entrenchment um, uh, that was distorting what we know about nutrition science with the debate in other fields, such as either client science or climate science or the public health approach to, uh, to COVID lockdowns, et cetera. I think that's an excellent question. And um... I think it's very hard to know unless you're inside a field, the you know whether there it's a healthy field or not. But I can say that the ingredients that go into making a field of science unhealthy are, I mean, almost all fields of science I can see suffer from this problem of having a dominant hypothesis that is adopted by its leaders, and then that in that hypothesis becoming very hard to challenge. Because young scientists, just in the just just looking at the science itself, young scientists feel uncomfortable to, and, and not just uncomfortable, they risk a real um, profession. They take real professional risks at saying anything that challenges their superiors. They risk not getting invited to conferences, not getting their papers published, not getting a job. So, um, 
that's the way that a hypothesis replicates itself and continues along. I mean, there's a there's a saying that well, science changes one death at a time. But in fact, science, uh, you know, the hypothesis is handed down from one generation to the next, and it's very hard to break out of it. I think other factors that go into making a field of science stagnant or non-reflective of new developments or new observations is the involvement of if there's um, industry involvement or government involvement, <laughs> but institutions with a massive interest in preserving the status quo, such as you know the government's involvement in in our dietary policy, which is why I've been working on that. But there's but you know you could say the same with the American Heart Association. You have large institutions that are invested. They're they're they depend upon the trust of the public. They cannot be seen as flip-flop-flopping. So, you know, institutional science is a little bit of an oxymoron. It's very hard for institutions to advance with, with science and be flexible. And then, of course, the influence of, of money. In this case, you know, there's a huge, the food industry is, of course, a massive industry, and they, um, they sort of, they're very deeply involved in the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And then in this case, there's also the pharmaceutical industry because they have a strong interest in um, in you know what they make money on, which is is disease. They people taking multiple medications, insulin. If people if people get healthy and and drop all their medications and get off insulin, that that is not good for their bottom line. So I mean, it's a we all know it's a cynical um, uh, incentive that they have, but it, it is nevertheless true. Does it exist in other fields of science? I, I would say that, you know, just touching on COVID, I, I, you know, there were obviously large pharmaceutical interests involved. And we can see from the, you know, the government's incredible reluctance to change its advice despite the changing science. Um, and that this was, you know, there was a lot of rigidity in that system and inability to really respond to the science except for in maybe a few instances. And and then the massive interest in the vaccine. I mean, this was a question that you had, Jennifer, so I'm, I'm gonna go ahead with it, um, which is that you know, if you look at the science, what is most closely tied, most closely associated with poor outcomes, hospitalization and death from COVID? Um, I wish I could see the audience and see you raise your hands because, you know, what is it? It is obesity is number one, um, right up there with high blood sugars. Well, high blood sugars is is directly related to obesity and diabetes, and and uh, and these things um, are you know other than being over eighty years old, this is next. So the nations you know with high obesity rates. One of the reasons we did so poorly in the United States is we have a we've, we have very high obesity rate. So does Mexico. So does India. Not so much in Europe. So, but you know, I have not heard one public health official come out and say, we need to talk about obesity or we need to talk about diabetes because these are things that we could do to protect our nation to be healthier, uh, not just for this epidemic, but any future epidemic. We don't even talk about our, our metabolic, what I call our metabolic health, which is the whole cluster of diseases that are involved. We don't talk about it at all. It's it, there's study after study comes out and there's not a peep from any of our public health leaders. And, you know, I think there are a number of reasons for that, but one of them certainly has to be that 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 solution 
is not favored by the multinational processed food companies or by the pharmaceutical companies. It's not to their benefit. But isn't there also, apologize for the, uh, the noise in the background, but isn't there also a cultural aspect that's going on as well that, that right now, you know, it went from being maybe, you know, don't be, don't be mean, don't bully people for, for, for being overweight, uh, don't be unkind to now that actually being being overweight or being obese or morbidly obese is, is something you should be proud of, that it's it's beautiful. And, and then recently in the cover of, uh, I think it was uh, the one of the European cosmopolitans, it said it had a picture of a, a young lady who was really close to morbidly obese saying this was healthy. Right. So now to even talk about obesity in terms yeah. of, you know, this is, as you said, the most, other than being over 80 years old, the most closely associated uh, risk for COVID and to talk about it is considered to be shaming. Yeah, I can't believe you're talking about it. You're just fat shaming everybody. <laughs> well, I think there is that fear, but paradoxically, uh, you know, it is our public health officials and our nutrition experts have been fat shaming for decades because their explanation of obesity is you eat too much and you don't exercise enough, right? This is the, the traditional paradigm of obesity is that it's calories in minus calories out. And that if you count your calories and you exercise enough, then you can lose weight. It's just a mathematical formula. Well, that could not be farther from the truth. And already by the 1950s, scientists were saying there's a massive body of knowledge to, of, of science now to say that this doesn't work. We've tried this and it doesn't work. And here we are, you know, 70 years later, still saying the same thing that doesn't work. It doesn't work for many reasons, but it is basically fat shaming because you're telling people who have overweight or obesity that it's their fault. You know, you loser, you can't control your appetite and you don't exercise enough. Well, I can tell you that when I ran an hour a day and, um, really was doing a, my best to count calories that I was 25 pounds heavier than I am now. And now I don't count calories and I exercise for my mental health, <laughs> but not, but you know, now the science has really changed. So if the public health community or the nutrition expert community, some people know this and they just won't talk about it. Other people I think truly haven't done their homework and don't know it, but it is the opposite of fat shaming. Because what you're saying to people who have these metabolic diseases, including obesity, is it's not your fault. You have a metabolic condition, which is that you are um, you have too much insulin circulating, or your body is no longer responding. It's called hyperinsulinemia or insulin resistance. Your body is not your insulin is not um, able to absorb the carbohydrates that you're eating, the blood sugar that you're, you're the the pastas, the cereals, the rice, the sugars, when it goes, when you eat it and it all becomes sugar in your body, you can't respond to it anymore because you've been eating it too much of it your whole life. And that's eventually what, you know, you, um, you tip over into diabetes or you start putting all that sugar into your fat cells because you can't burn it for energy. That model of obesity and, and, and diabetes is, uh, a, a, a new, not necessarily a new model, but it's one that over the last 15 years, a vast amount of science has come out 
supporting this model and this idea. And it says to the person, the fat person or the overweight person, it's not your fault and you've been given the wrong advice and it's within your power to, it's perfectly within your power to lose weight sustainably and to do it without hunger, which is the key thing because nobody can stay hunger, hungry forever. And it's, you know, and it's imperative for your health that you do this because it is not healthy to have obesity. I mean, a little weight is, you know, extra weight is totally fine. And I think that there's, there's actually some evidence to show that people who are too, who are thinner, um, are, you know, may not live as long and I, and it's, it's, it's associational data. So I'm not sure how much of a stake to put in that, but obesity is, a is a problem in that it, it reflects metabolic ill health. Um, and increases your risk for heart disease and diabetes and a bunch of other things. But, you know, we have to talk about it. And, um, and, uh, and I think that the way to do it is a way that, that takes the blame off of people um, rather than blaming people. I mean, if you think about it, how crazy is it that we somehow all lost our willpower around, you know, 1980 and all of a sudden started overeating? Like our, our grandparents didn't have that problem. And oh, I mean, yeah, you know, they didn't they didn't have the problem in part because they didn't have just just the sheer amount and variety of uh, choices of uh, food that was as, as inexpensive as as it is now, as delicious as it is now. I mean, that is um, it's, it's the wonders of capitalism. But but our evolution, the way that we were built, you know, we're, we're built to, to want to eat more and, and uh, eat more fat and, and consume more calories and store it. So um, I guess I, I guess I would just say I have rarely seen anyone who is eating um, you know th 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 normally or that they are not you know um, ha having candy or having uh, other other things that uh, a lot of snacks that are that are overweight. Well, let me put it this way. There are a lot of people who are highly motivated to lose weight, who are eating a lot of fruits and vegetables and whole grains, doing what the doctor tells them, and are slowly getting fatter and sicker every year. And I would, you know, and, and, and they're making their own homemade bread, they're doing everything right, um, they're exercising, and they're getting fatter. They're gaining weight, and their their conditions are not getting better. There, there's just a huge population who is like that, and then there is a population, I believe, of people who've given up because this advice doesn't work, and they keep going back to their doctor, and their doctor says, "You need to have more fruits and vegetables, and whole grains, and seeds, and and nuts, and and if, and less meat and less dairy." And they go and they try that even harder, and that doesn't work. And so there's sort of a collective giving up that happens. Um, and they eat more because, and this is going back to the question you had quite a while ago, but what's wrong with a low-fat diet is that when you cut out uh, fat out of the diet, when you cut out proteins, animal foods, fat and protein are what, are what satiate you, what fill you up, what gives you a sense of, of being full and not hungry and also over a long period of time. If you have you know, beef stew for lunch or a tuna fish salad or a chicken salad, you really won't be hungry for a very long time. If you have eggs and bacon for breakfast, or just eggs, you know, you won't be hungry throughout the whole morning. Whereas if you have cereal and you, you know, maybe low fat yogurt, which is high in sugar, your blood sugar spikes 
Um, and you can see it now. You can get one of those continuous glucose monitors and wear it around and see what works on your body. Your blood sugar spikes and then it plunges. And when it plunges mid-morning, you're hungry again. You're not just hungry, you're starving. So there are foods that drive your appetite. And that's what makes us eat more. So is eating those foods that drive us to be hungry because they have these this uh, this effect on our blood sugar. If you're eating eggs for breakfast, chicken salad for lunch, you know, steak for dinner or fish for dinner, your blood sugar is like this. And so it stays flat. And so, and, and you do not have hunger cravings and the protein, especially the protein and to some extent, the fat really fills you up and gives you that feeling of being satiated. And you don't get that eating carbohydrates. Um, as the main source of your diet. Um, so the low fat diet put us on this roller coaster of blood sugar that um, kept us off the food that actually helped us stay satiated and feel full and put us on this, this blood sugar roller coaster that made us to crave and want more, uh, more and more food. So when you go back to this idea, like why do we eat so much more than our, our grandparents did? You know, they did, a lot of them had plenty of food, but they just weren't, they didn't overeat because they were filling themselves up at meals. And they also didn't snack. That's another thing, like constantly eating, eating so much, you know, all day long, the constant drip drips, you never, your body never recovers is, is and, and, the, and the flip side of that, why intermittent fasting now has gained so much popularity and works is to avoid the constant drip drip of food, um, which, you know, we're, we're now a snacking culture and our grandparents were not. So Nina, um, you published this book, yeah, uh, The Big Fat Surprise, in 2014, and uh, you also spent nine years, I believe, researching it and working on it. Um, what are some of the side areas? I mean, with the thousands of studies that you you read about nutrition and dietary uh, fat and meat consumption, were there other areas that you kind of found that surprised you that you may have tucked away, whether, you know, it might have been about supplements or, um, I, I don't know, um, GMO or organic foods, that kind of thing that maybe might be a subject for a, for a future book. Um, it's very dangerous to ask that kind of question of like an obsessive compulsive researcher because... <laughs> could hog your show for a long time. I would say that there's two things that I would like to mention. One is vegetable oils, polyunsaturated vegetable oils, soybean, corn, canola, all those oils. Uh, I researched them for um, and talked to you know maybe a hundred oil chemists and, and the, all the people who work in that field. That is a fascinating subject and it's worth reading the end of chapter nine where I talk about what happens when you heat these oils and, and the huge amount of toxic oxidation products that is produced when they're heated. This is especially of concern if you're cooking with them at home. I mean, that's easy to get rid of. It's better to cook with um, a hard fat like butter or um, coconut oil or, uh, I mean, dare I say lard, um, but, um, but it's but all, almost all restaurants cook and fry their food in these oils, and there's just a fascinating story about how uh, because the heated oils generate so many toxic oxidation products that 
the workers' uniforms that would come off at, say, a McDonald's or a Burger King using these oils, um, these uniforms would, in the back of the trucks, being while they were being taken to the laundromat, would spontaneously combust um, because there were so many of these highly volatile oxidation products on them. And then they would combust again in the dryers after they had been cleaned, again, because of the heat um, caused this you know, chemical reaction that um, that caused them to catch on fire. And those oxidation products also enter into the food, enter into your body when you eat the food, um, cross the blood-brain barrier. Are no, there's a known carcinogens. They are known to um, be a contributor to heart disease. And those are still in our food supply. Um, they they came into our food supply um, in even greater amounts when we got rid of trans fats, which is a whole other story <laughs> that you can read about. But that's a real concern and a direct, um, I think, of direct interest for people who are, you know, who go out to eat, and as we are all now going out to eat again. Um, and I think the other chapter that, or the other subject area that I just found fascinating was about the history of the Mediterranean diet, where that concept came from and how it was commercialized here in the United States and how it came about because the European Olive Oil Council decided to fund a bunch of um, basically junkets, like fantastic trips all over the Mediterranean for scientists and journalists and chefs. And, and, um, and that was how they created kind of this commercial concept of the Mediterranean diet that um, that was sold uh, really starting by Harvard and then cookbook authors and 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 but it was all to promote the olive oil industry in in Europe. Um, that was that was the whole genesis of the Mediterranean diet. So that's a, a really fun and interesting story, I think, as well. Mark Goodkin uh, asks, "What are your thoughts on keto and paleo foods and diets?" Um. Paleo is a low carbohydrate diet, a little bit less so, and it doesn't include dairy is notable because it doesn't believe that cavemen, um, which it's based on, uh, ate dairy. Uh, I think that paleo is fine and it certainly helped a lot of people. I mean, both paleo and keto and just a generic low carb diet, they all have in common this idea of increasing the amount of animal foods that you eat. So more meat, more eggs, more fish, more chicken, more, um, and, and most of them more dairy, but not paleo and reducing your carbohydrates, reducing grains, sugars, um, you know, any kind of grain, even whole grain, once it goes into your body, your body understands that as sugar. And it really doesn't make much of a difference whether it, it is, it kind of, is absorbed slowly or quickly, it's still, you know, teaspoons of sugar going into your body. Um, and I think surprising for many people is that fruit <clears throat> has the same impact on, on people as a lot of sugar in it. So all those diets have that in common. The ketogenic diet um, is named after um, ketones, which is this idea that your body produces, if you get your carbohydrates low enough over a period of time, your body goes into a state where it produces something called ketones. And ketones is your body's, it really is its original fuel. I mean, 
back before we grew grain, back before the human species had grains and, and carbohydrates, we were probably mostly in ketosis, uh, which is the state of producing ketones. And ketones is like an alternative fuel. So if you think of your body as like a hybrid car, you can run off of glucose, which comes out of car carbohydrates and sugars, or if you restrict carbohydrates, you will generate ketones, which is um, derived from your fats. So, which is, an, which is just another fuel. So you're like a hybrid car. You can use, if, you, if you're metabolically flexible, as we say, if you, you can operate off your ketones, or if you eat some carbs, you can operate off your um, glucose. Most Americans can only operate off of glucose because they've never been in this other state over here, which is ketogenesis. The great thing about being in ketosis or being on this in this state where you're generating ketones is that it is basically using your own fat as fuel. Um, if you think about it, you know, your fat on your body, I'll just show you my fat here, <laughs> is, you know, your fat is like this great backup source of fuel for when you don't have food around, right? That's like having granola bars strapped all over your body in case of emergency, right? Or at nighttime when you're not eating. And it's a, what you want to do is to be able to burn that fat as energy when you need it. Or if you have a lot of fat on your body, you want to be able to burn that fat, um, uh, you know, just so you can burn it off your body. But that won't happen as long as glucose is around because glucose is the preferred fuel source. So you have to remove glucose in order to start burning your fat. So I think both of those diets are healthy. They both have, um, ke the ketogenic diet has a, a great deal of clinical trial literature behind it. The paleo diet has a decent amount. They've both been tested um, and they both have you know, good outcomes for cardiovascular disease, really excellent outcomes for cardiovascular disease. And the ketogenic diet has been shown to put people in type two diabetes into remission, like reverse their diagnosis of diabetes. So it's a pretty powerful diet. Speaking of diets, I want to real, real quickly get to what a day in the diet of uh, the, the Taishol's family looks like. I'm going to assume it probably has a lot more dairy, but I also want to end with talking a bit about your work with the Nutrition Coalition and uh, the progress that, that you've made, what you're working on now, and how people can support your efforts. Great. Well, um, I have to say there is no Teichel's family diet because everybody in my family is a little different. But, um, you know, we have, I, I, I don't eat breakfast because I'm, I do the intermittent fasting thing, which is just to limit my window of eating. My kids have eggs. Um, we sometimes have bacon or sausages. And then I have one kid who like <laughs> eats a lot of junk food. Um, and then I have another, uh, both of my sons are teenagers. Um, I have another son who, uh, who eats a lot of yogurt and, um, Do you have a rebel who's like following the, the Ornish diet just to spite No, you? I don't have any vegan children. They occasionally threaten me with the going vegan. What would you do, mom? Um, but you know, eating junk food is pretty rebellious. Um, but you know, they're, everybody's pretty much on a fairly, low carb diet, but you don't have to say like, I mean, my, you know, one of my sons is growing so rapidly right now. And so I, you know, I make him pancakes every morning <laughs> or a lot of mornings. And, you know, we have, um, 
we have just simple food because none of us, we just don't, ha- you know, we don't have a cook in-house. So you know, we make steak, we make fish, chicken, we'll make salad, vegetable. That's it. We don't have a starch. Often we just do not have a starch on the table and we don't have a loaf of bread and we don't have dessert. Like we don't, we don't have dessert. And then sometimes when we have guests over, I forget, like I forget, oh, no, we have no dessert because we just don't eat dessert. It's not our habit to eat it after dinner. Um, so what was your other question? The Nutrition Coalition. Yeah. Well, I, I founded, thank you for asking. I founded this group uh, it, in 2015 called the Nutrition Coalition with the very lofty ambition of trying to bring more science to our dietary guidelines, which is our nation's nutrition policy. This is the major nutrition policy of the federal government. And you can think, I think this crowd probably understands more than most how influential government can be. Um, The dietary guidelines is a massively influential policy. It is the single um, most influential lever in determining what Americans eat and what they think is a healthy diet. So it flows down in so many ways from the $100 billion in nutrition assistance programs that go out to school lunches, breakfast, feeding programs for the elderly, women and infant children, food baskets, um, and all those people are getting the dietary guidelines. Most of the most of those people, there are very high rates of obesity and diabetes, and the dietary guidelines is giving them six servings of grains a day, and um, and 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 you know, for women and infant children, no meat, no almost um, very few eggs. So anybody getting the dietary guidelines is getting uh, six servings of grains, as I said, including three servings of refined grains, 10% of the diet is sugar, and then um, vegetable oils, no natural fats, no butter. And, um, and the dietary guidelines is also downloaded to, you know, they're followed by most medical doctors, dietitians, nurses, uh, nutritionists, all your healthcare practitioners are, are taught in the guidelines and most of them uh, risk medical malpractice of some kind or, or, or um, uh, if they do not teach the guidelines. So they really dominate uh, nutrition education. They are what's taught K through 12 in our schools if they're getting any kind of nutrition programming. So they're, they're extremely influential um, and they're really not based on rigorous science. And what I mean by rigorous science is randomized controlled clinical trials. So like if you get a pill when you go to your doctor, that has been through a clinical trial, uh, at least one, um, if not two. It, but the dietary guidelines are based basically on this kind of what we call epidemiology observational studies that show association but not causation. It's an extremely weak kind of science. And in the case of nutrition, it's all based on these dietary, these recall studies like you know how many peaches did you have in the last six months on average and how many meat dishes and how i mean it's just information that people don't remember can't recall don't don't even um don't record accurately because they don't they don't remember or they want to lie about what they eat so it's really bad weak data and our dietary guidelines are based almost entirely on that um while ignoring a massive amount of evidence to the contrary so we have made some progress. I mean, we're the only group in the world that is actually drawing attention to the problems of our, our dietary guidelines. Um, we have, um, I think, done a really good job of bringing this issue to you know the attention of 
we have gotten a lot of press. We, um, I think that we were able to get the National Academies of Sciences to do the first ever outside peer review of the dietary guidelines. Um, we were able to get Congress to mandate a million dollars for that. And we've um, worked hard to try to get Congress to sort of follow up on that, ensure, try to ensure that the USDA uh, uh, actually complies with the National Academies report recommendations. So, and when we're, you know, actively engaging the academic community, um, scientists to basically to try to stand up, like stand up and speak out for the science. There's a lot of fear in the field and um, there's really not much reward for standing up for science. So um, I, you know, our group gathers together academics and gives them sort of some, some you know, money and some ability to meet and talk and, and then to, you know, if they decide to publish papers that are, that are about the current science that is not reflected in the guidelines. Great. So where can we go to to follow it, learn more about it, and, and follow you? Yeah. So I mean, please donate because we are we don't take any money from industry, and we really are the only group in the world doing this. Um, it's nutritioncoalition.us. Um, please go and read our stuff and um, and donate. It is an important cause. I mean, if you think about the cost of diabetes alone, is three hundred and fifty billion dollars a year, and that it's uh, health it these diseases are the the major driver of our healthcare costs and our biggest driver um i think it's like 15 percent of our discretionary spending u.s discretionary spending they're they're bankrupting our nation i mean not to mention just the enormous human suffering so reversing these diseases and getting the science right is just extremely important well thank you very much nina for for joining us um for this for this hour and I want to encourage again, all of you to check out her book, The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet. Um, this has really been delightful. I wanna thank uh, all of you who join us every week uh, on the Atlas Society Asks and thanks also to those of you who asked your questions and who, uh, who also support the Atlas Society. We are also a nonprofit and uh, our programming is made possible by your support. So thank you, thank you, Nina, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. Take care.